Global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. The importance on the global stage of developing and developed nations waxes and wanes while consumption and interconnectedness steadily increase, all the while laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. But how do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Brickens, international business attorneys. I'm Fred Rockefort. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every week, we take a targeted look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of international experts. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finance, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please connect with us on social media to comment, and suggest future topics and guests. Today we are joined by Robert Lamb, a corporate transactional attorney in our firm's Salt Lake City office. He has a specific focus on international trade, finance, joint venture structures, and cross-border and domestic M&A. He has represented clients on deals involving some of the best-known brands and innovative concepts and technologies in the world. Over the last 20 years, he has traveled extensively, lived and practiced in remote corners of the globe, and represented clientele from Asia, Europe, the Americas, and the Middle East. Robert is also fluent in Mandarin Chinese. Rob, ni hao, huan ying. Mehen gao xing he ni gou tong. Rob, I'm particularly happy to have you with us today, partly because you and I are the firm's core members of the Salt Lake City office. We both speak Chinese. We both do a lot of international deals. You become a mentor to me. So this is uh, in one way uh, a thank you, but also a lot of fun. And, and certainly we're happy to have you share your expertise with us and our audience today. Thanks, Jonathan. I, I look forward to the conversation. I think we're gonna have a lot of fun over the next hour. So we love to start out our podcast by getting your background story. Why did you become an attorney? How did you get to this point in your career? What makes you tick? Well, it's a good question. I, I think I'm somewhat of an unlikely attorney in the sense that um, there was nobody in my family that, that was an attorney that had gone to law school or for that matter had really gone to graduate school. Um, I think that I was born of a, of a curious and a critical mind. Um, in my late teens, I started to travel a bit and that expanded my worldview and my mind view. And um, in went to school at the University of Utah, studied uh, history, uh, political science, and then got a minor in Chinese uh, together with some travel, became fluent in, Man in Mandarin Chinese and decided that law school would be a good, good option and a good way to sort of view and access the world or, or the globe. Rob, welcome to the podcast. It's also a pleasure to, to have this opportunity to to chat with you and also to welcome um, one of our own, if you will, to to the podcast. Uh, it's great to talk to those who can bring in new perspectives um, and and coming from different entities, different uh, companies. But it's also also great to to be able to um, dig deeper into into things with uh, with you. So. Turning, turning to your areas of expertise, you have a deep background in international supply chains and international supply chain finance. Um, what's, what's happening in the world of supply chains? I know that 
that there's a lot of uh, stories in the news about all the issues that that are that are happening because of the the pandemic and the different um, related issues and things like the the, the container uh, shortage that that we are that we are facing. So, could you give us an overview of of what is happening and perhaps just to just to get things started, um, maybe a, a very brief one to two sentence definition of what is a supply chain? Because this is one of those terms that is is increasingly in our vernacular. And I think a lot of people have at least some inkling of what that means. But I think uh, I fear that we may we may be getting too far ahead of ourselves uh, and getting to the point where people are just going to be afraid of even asking what that is. So so maybe let's start off by defining what's the supply chain and then sort of move on from there. Supply chain. It's that's a great question. Supply chain really takes it's it's a generic term that takes the very basic raw material puts it into use of some sort, depending on where, where we're at. Um, there usually is some level of consumer demand that's triggering the need for that product, whatever it is. And it takes the raw material all the way through some form of manufacturing to transportation. Um, there is an overlay of finance, which we'll talk separately. I think it needs to be treated separately. And then all the way into, into transportation, whether that be air, land, um, or sea, and um, puts it into the ultimately puts it into the consumer. So it's a generic term that sort of ties that full process of manufacturing and transportation and consumption into one idea, which is supply chain. And Fred, to follow up um, on your question, it is interesting to me that it's actually not talked about more. Certainly it is. You mentioned, you mentioned the crisis uh, right now with containers, which is part of it. Um, it. It is somewhat of a cliche to say that, that, a, that a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. We sort of live right now in a, in a time, in an era, where almost every single link is weak. <laughs> and, and because of that, it, it is really truly at, a, at a, something of a, at a crisis point. And let me give you just a quick two-year, probably three-year version of why we are where we're at right now. Um, you and and again, I, I this is this is sort of an apolitical discussion. I'm I'm I won't be waxing any sort of politics in this at all. But politics are relevant, so we'll just speak to them as facts. Um, during the Trump presidency, about midway through the Trump presidency, um, he initiated what are now what we now know are the Trump sanctions against China. And, and then there were sort of countermeasures to that. And the ultimate effect was a squeeze on supply. And you had this, you had this lull, you had this resulting lull in manufacturing for the first time in a long time a across the board and across all different types of products. And, and, and then just when, just when the market was starting to figure that out, you have an epidemic, you have the COVID epidemic, which suppresses demand even more. And at and at the midst at the midpoint to the end point of 2020, you had the stimulus, sort of global, not just in the United States, but you had global stimulus that pushed up rapid demand. So there was pent up demand, whether it be in audio, automobiles, uh, electronics, or what have you. This pent up demand and the infrastructure, the supply chain, just absolutely wasn't prepared for that, and it, it, they just 
you have to mobilize workforce, you have to mobilize factories, you have tooling and molding, um, you, you have all sorts of, of aspects and part of the infrastructure that just weren't on. And so the demand, the demand wasn't met, or at least it was really, really slow to sort of get ramped up again. And, and, and frankly, th that's where we're at now. And then you have an overlay of politics. Um, access to raw materials is absolutely an, an issue. Um, uh, silicon chips, for example, almost now become commodities in a trade war. And so politics overlays all of this and you have this perfect storm of, of, of supply chain crisis. Fred, you, you specifically mentioned the container shortage crisis and that's very much part of the problem. Um, what happened with that is that is that Asia supplied so much of the personal protection equipment, the PPE equipment during COVID. And a lot of those containers went for the first time to a lot of remote parts of the world. And those retain those containers didn't come back. It became economically inefficient to send containers back into some of the manufacturing spots and ports around the world. And so that that's part of the crisis. You also have a labor shortage. Um, the labors affect the ports and they also affect transport, whether it be the uh, tractor trailers on the roads or the, the rail stations, um, the labor shortages at also affected and hurt, ultimately hurt the supply chain. So you have this, this sort of perfect storm of all of these components. Now, the good news is that the consumer is still, at least for now, is still demanding their product. Um, you have logistics companies that are very adaptable and good at what they do, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but but ultimately, you have the, you have a level of delay and lack of product that you probably we probably have not seen in a long time. Just recently, I was with my family in the springtime. I was with my family in the Newport, California area. You could see it's a, it's an area of the world that I tend to go at least once or twice a year, and I've never seen container ships, almost as many as you could count, moored out into the ocean, just waiting for their opportunity to be unloaded. That to me is, is, is anecdotal evidence of the labor shortage and the inability to really take those goods off and get them distributed through the United States. So th that sort of thing is happening all over the world now. Thank you for that explanation, right, of, of what, what a supply chain consists of. I, I think that was that was very useful, very practical way of, of explaining it. Really, if you think about it, a, a supply chain, you know, even for for goods that are produced exclusively from uh, inputs found here in the United States, there would still be a supply chain. We, we, we sort of think of containers and, and ships um, when we talk about about supply chains. Supply chains don't have to be international. However, that it leads me to, to to my question, which is that, well, obviously, when your supply chain starts to depend on places and, and inputs that are coming from very far away, that's going to to complicate things, right? Uh, even even under the best of circumstances, right? It's not the same to have a supply chain that is entirely located within one country or perhaps within a region, right, where where there might be an international border that has to be dealt with, but but it is a it is a land border. So I, I think, and going back to your point about how how there's that overlay of politics. Obviously, it is impossible really to extricate or to differentiate uh, between supply chains and the the broader geopolitics. 
So um, I wonder if you have anything to, to say about that, about what it's meant um, in, in our particular case here in the United States, this increased dependence on international supply chains. And not only that, I mean, supply chains that really span the world, right, uh, uh, across the, the, the Pacific Ocean. Uh, well, what are the implications of that particular type of, of supply chain? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and that was, that was, that's part of the solution. You're hinting at part of the of the answer, and let, let me let me explain. I've I've been in this space now for twenty years of of my career, most of my career. And I think about two or three years in, there was a book that everybody was thrilled about, excited about, and reading and bantering um, called "The World Is Flat," and and I think all of us on this call have probably read and digested that. And what's happening now is is the complete opposite. It is to domesticate supply chain and to regionalize supply chain. That's that's what's happening. I think that that most in the space are basically saying we have gone too global and now it's time to to contract and to find ways to be less exposed to the risk of geopolitics and more self-sufficient within a region. Now, I think that that works generically and I think that that will absolutely be the trend and it already is the trend. And, and we as lawyers do, that's part of what we do. We help companies sort of domesticate and regionalize supply chain. Uh, I have a client right now that we are taking some of their equipment, breaking it down from Southern China and locating it here in the United States. They wanna be completely self-sufficient within a region. And, and that's the trend. I think that will continue, continue to happen. So, Rob, in addition to looking for regional self-sufficiency, which which obviously is something that we have to uh, to look at, what other alternatives might there might there be? This is a, a question with with really practical consequences, right? I mean, at the firm, we have a very active international trade practice. We have a lot of clients that come to us uh, facing issues related to uh, to to the tariffs, to and to other uh, other sorts of trade barriers that exist, especially in the in the context of of China trade, and. The, the conversation will will take us in in various directions. Often, there are clients for whom turning to to a place like Mexico is 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 an acceptable solution. There are clients though that cannot do that, right? And then we we have to look at other possibilities. Um, one one thing that I'll just throw out, but of course, uh, what I'd really like to hear is is your own take on this. Often, uh, what what our our uh, proposed solutions uh, entail is a separation of different elements of, of the supply chain in a way that allows the, the client to to better contend with existing conditions. So for example, just to give a very simple example, let's say a client is in the business of selling product A and there are issues with, with product A, whether it's uh, tariffs that are imposed on that product or other trade issues, and in, the, in some cases, the the path forward is is for for the client to separate elements of the supply chain, so that instead of doing everything in, in China, for example, they they'll do some of the work in China and then some of the work elsewhere, or some of the work in the U.S. Or once they go down that path, they might discover that well, if we're going to be separating the the, uh, the different components of the supply chain, we actually don't need to rely on China anymore because whereas we need China in order to be able to do the whole thing. Uh, if we're only going to be doing 50% of it 
in country A before bringing it to the U.S., then country A can be any number of countries. So, so that's one thing that comes to mind. But uh, again, uh, I'd like to hear uh, from you as to as to what might be some ways forward out of out of these uh, these issues. Well, Fred, you're exactly right. Um, work to domesticate or to regionalize your supply chain is 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 an interesting theory that may work for some and may absolutely not work for other. There's another complexity, of course, to this, and that is actual access to necessary and raw materials. That's part of it. Then there's an, a related part is access to brain power. That is access to a skill set or to regions that have a certain level of skill set that can put chipsets together, for example, and have that background education, educated populace, educated working force. So all of those things matter with respect to your ability to regionalize. And, and I think because of that, you'll see a lot of local governments, especially in the United States, and we're seeing it already, local state governments, county governments that are trying to get ahead of the game a bit and, and see that this regionalization is happening and will continue to happen. And, and they're allocating government resources to sort of make sure that happens and builds it out. That's one thing. You mentioned uh, moving from Asia to, to Latin America. That is another trend I think that the three of us are dealing with almost on a daily basis, which is great. Um, and we can help our clients sort of do that, navigate through that. Um, the, other, the other thing that's happening too, and I got to speak generically to this just because we'd have to take it case by case, but anytime that there is um, strain on a supply chain or there's strain on at consumers access to a desired good and there is a need for that good it's ultimately going to work it the system's going to work and and what's happening are advances in technologies across the board um, the the shifting from one raw material to another or the, the the lack of need for that that raw material anymore into what now is a new product and so we'll see a lot of that building and growing and and the good news of that is that that's opportunity. That almost always is opportunity and sort of growth, technological expansion is, is creates a level of new industry. And we're going to see new industry as there is more and more global strain on the supply chain. You're going to see the rise of new, of new technologies. I'll, I'll just mention one other opportunity that I think our clients are taking advantage of. And this sort of gets to your product A, product B scenario. Where, whereas I, I am seeing really good, well, well-established um, companies here in the United States that have an established infrastructure, they are lending that, they're monetizing that infrastructure in partnership to other companies and, and, and um, doubling up on or lending resources sort of in a mutual effort. Usually those are non-competitive products and and they're taking existing resources and basically finding ways to monetize those to lend and almost become supply chain companies within these regions that are building and expanding out. And Rob, I've seen that recently as well. I just joined the board of World Trade Center Utah not too long ago. And Utah companies that are trying to import a lot of goods and have don't have the individual capacity to negotiate better shipping terms and dedicated shipping lanes with common carriers who have been consolidated in, in the last several years. 
And so they're they're trying to find a business solution to that. They're also as an as a group, right, as an aggregate group, and also trying to find a, a, maybe a legislative solution as well uh, in in Utah in DC to help uh, shipping companies address uh, address these needs in a real meaningful way, rather than just jacking up prices. Yeah, I see the exact same trend. So, Rob, money always matters, right? I mean, you, you're a supply chain finance guy. You and I have dealt a lot with this. Uh, there are a lot of terms that, uh, frankly, scare people, right? And you talk about LCs and different types of LCs. And so can you start with the lingo on supply chain finance? Tell us what it means, how it fits in parallel with the supply chain, and, and then we'll dig a little deeper into, uh, into opportunities as well for companies that might not be uh, leveraging their, uh, their financial resources uh, the way that they could. You bet. And yeah, let me speak to this. I get called almost on a weekly basis from somebody that's looking to have a product made or a product sourced. And they have found a manufacturer in Asia. Usually it's in China, not always, but usually it's in China. And they want to have that product made and made to a certain quantity and made to a certain spec and then shipped. And it's always um, fun to speak to such entrepreneurs that have that desire and have that interest in, in creating a product and then having it fully supplied back. It is quite daunting and usually, usually it's in this space, it's in the finance space. And what we're talking about is risk. That is, if you go to, if you go to a, a manufacturer in China or in Taiwan or what have you and say, I have the greatest product ever and I want to get this made. And it, it is almost always sure we can do that. This much is required to pay on the front side. It's always a tug and pull on where are you going to land the financial risk of that. And so, and so there have been certain instruments that have been created. Um, and, and the letters of credit are one of them. Um, escrow arrangements are another and so let me let me sort of speak to those. And it's basically using credit and debt leverage to finance the production of your good. And that, that's ultimately the, the point of all of this. And 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 I think all of us on this phone call have have heard the terrible story of going over to China, pre-financing it all, um, putting a bunch of money into it, and then get, getting absolutely nothing ever in return. And that happens surprisingly a lot. And there are these, these facilities that we build out or these facilities that we can give our clients access to, these, these financing facilities. They're really about managing risk on your cash. And, and to a large extent, we help sort of negotiate with these factories because we've done it our whole career. We can negotiate with these factories terms. At a certain level, they have to get, they have to get the moldings done. They got to get the tooling set up. So there are upfront expenses that there's an expectation. And so what's come around are these what we call letters of credit. And we won't get into the details of all the types of letters of credit. But the basic concept is you go to your bank and say, this project is going to cost me a certain amount. We'll say $100,000 to get this product all done and build out and get my initial supply, $100,000. So you, there's a bunch of ways you can do it. You can pledge your credit with that bank if you have it. Or you can actually put cash towards, you keep it in your bank, you keep it safe, and you create this letter of credit that goes to either the factory or it goes to the factory's bank. And it creates conditions on the pull down, on the drawdown. 
And those are very specific conditions that we help negotiate that say when this is done and this is done and this is done to satisfaction and then this is delivered, then at, at points of, of achievement or accomplishment through that process, amounts of dollars can be pulled through and pulled down. And it creates a really nice way to mitigate, manage the risk of cash and getting products done. So, so, so I, I just sort of built that out on a, on a theoretical concept. Um, for medium-sized businesses, th this is available. And, and with all of the bad news around supply chain, there still is a lot of money in supply chain finance. Now, like everything else where there's high risk, there's a higher level of scrutiny in getting approved for some of these. But if, if you can demonstrate a demand, if you can demonstrate really strong paper, what we say your purchase orders, if you can demonstrate that there's a good chance for a medium-sized company that's looking to really expand their, their uh, product supply, whether it be in China, whether it be in Mexico, frankly, whether it be in the, somewhere in the United States, we can help put these letters of credit facilities in place and um, they function to really mitigate your cash risk and to help us as lawyers put our heads around what are all the triggering events that allow the factory to pull down on that cash and to make sure you get it safe and supplied, get it safe and sound in your uh, factories or in your own warehouse. So, Rob, can you talk for a minute about how letters of credit are functionally different from an escrow arrangement? I mean, I see parallels, of course, but can you just kind of talk nuts and bolts about how it's functionally different, and maybe even from a cost perspective? Sure. They're both governed by legal contracts or legal language, and they both, both an escrow and a letter of a credit create um, conditional terms, conditional terms of, of pull down. Um, what the difference between escrow and letters of credit within the space of goods and supply chain, letters of credit are literally used thousands and thousands of times a day. And so the institutions that are fluent with letters of credit, they, they just function and flow almost seamlessly and, and, and usually really reputable manufacturers prefer them because there is a level of flow and expectation that they can, they can budget on, they can count on. Um, escrow is almost always a private transaction and usually you settle to escrow. That is, you only go to escrow because the letters of credit um, structure just didn't work for whatever reason, you didn't get approved or what have you. And so it's, it's sort of like doing the same thing, but in a private transaction. A lot of times you'll use an independent uh, third-party bank or you'll use an independent law firm and you'll basically pledge the same amount of dollars into, into an escrow account and then you create conditions on drawdown and pull down. Um, usually there's no credit involved. If you're doing letters of, letters of credit and you're a medium to larger size business and you have credit lines, you can actually leverage your credit lines and pledge your, your credit lines to allow... Um, to allow payment. And, and so, and so you, in an escrow arrangement, you don't get the advantage of having credit as part of the, of the transaction. And in some of these medium to larger size businesses, cash flow is everything. So, so letters of credit are definitely better and, and, and more fluent within the space of, of purchasing goods and pay, making payments. Um, but escrow can work. You, Jonathan, you and I have done many of them. 
And so escrow arrangements can work, but they're a little bit more clunky and you don't get the advantage of credit lines. So Rob, let's turn to to our practice and, and to our day-to-day. And I'm excited about this this topic because honestly, uh, on the uh, on the podcast, we we do tend to focus on the on the big picture issues, the the um, the substantive issues. But it's 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 good every once in a while to to turn to to fundamentals. And I know you are passionate about meeting your clients on their home turf. This requires you to travel extensively, and I'd love to hear. Um, more about these travels. Perhaps you can you can tell us about some of the more unique experiences you've had. Um, but why is this so important? I mean, I think some of this is intuitive, but it, it, it's good to to hear about it in concrete terms. What is it that you and your client gain from these in person interactions? Oh, Fred, that's a great question, and it's something that I'm personally sort of struggling with in the sense that my entire my entire practice of, of doing these international transactions over the last 15, 20 years has been, as you say, very, very interactive and, and, and in person and present. And I, I tend to see the world as social and to see the, these transactions as an opportunity to make and to build relationships. And, and it, that's not just a personal ideology. I think that that is true for most of the world. Um, there, was, there was one time that we were putting together a private, it was, so it was a non-institutional bank. It was a private group, a family group that had done a lot of, of third-party products financing. And this group, was somebody that I had a relationship with that I had done a couple different transactions. And on behalf of the client, I went to him and said, we have this, we have this PO, we would like you to finance the PO. And they said, you know what, come to, come to China on this day. And uh, so-and-so from the family office will be there. Let's have the discussion. So I flew to Shanghai, had the meeting, meeting went great. And they said, you know, um, we, we would like to have, our mother, who was the sort of the the matriarch of the family and the matriarch of the of the fortune, we would like to have her approve it as well. And she is actually in Taiwan for Chinese New Year, and it would mean a lot to her if you could go over and and have be part of the family dinner at Chinese New Year in Taiwan. And and I realized as they were talking that that was like. 36 hours away. <laughs> and so, and so um, I, you know, I talked to the client and they said, yeah, go. And, um, and you have to make sacrifices. Of course, I was supposed to be home at a baseball game by that time, but instead I rerouted and went and had a wonderful Chinese new year in Taiwan and we were able to help close the deal. And, and I know, I realized that to a large extent that that is sort of an old school mindset and mentality, but, but I think it still rings true. And perhaps in this really weird world, this acrimonious world that we tend to live in now, where everybody's sort of wondering what your politics are and what your ideologies are, that we've, we've, there's just enough animus out there that we've lost the, the personal and human touch. And it's hard during COVID not to be able to travel like I traveled before. And I still am confident once, once the, the, the disease and the variants are all under control, that we'll get back to that. Um, I think that, that the, I, where I can, I like to do video conferences still, which which has been really really nice. But I think ultimately these it's deal making, 
And I think ultimately deal-making is still, to a large extent, not handshaking as much anymore, but fist bumping and seeing people eye to eye and creating creating trust within the transaction, but sort of relationships beyond that. And so that's just been part of what I've loved to do. And, and I hope that I hope sooner rather than later, we're getting back to that. Rob, I remember you mentioning to me uh, working on a deal and you picked up the phone. You were probably here in the States. You called one of your contacts in Hong Kong and she walked over to the bank to get face to face with someone to smooth over some hiccup in the financing. And that, and that to me was uh, indicative of, of this type of relationship management you're talking about, where if you had just been in the US sending an email to Asia, you're trying to get something done, they may or may not have paid attention to you. But when you can, or within your network, you can send someone to sit down face to face and get a meeting, you can get things done much faster and you preserve those, those real relationships rather than just those transactional relationships. Building out the interpersonal infrastructure, as I call it, <laughs> the relationships is as important as developing the skill set itself, the transactional or the legal skill set to have to have people that trust you and that you can trust that you can trigger in those types of moments, I think is absolutely critical to the overall success. And frankly, it's being lost a little bit with this with this weirdness that we're in and in, in with the global pandemic, um, there, there was, and this is both to your point, Jonathan, and to Fred's earlier point, that there was another time that uh, a I had helped transact a manufacturing arrangement on a on a consumer product with a group that was lo- physically located in Shenzhen, but their corporate offices were in Hong Kong, and and th- there was one term that we thought we had fully ironed out, that indeed we had ironed out, but that for whatever reason, um, some of the production, that when they reassessed production, they realized that they had to adjust a pretty critical term to the contract. And that was going to mean a fair, that was going to squeeze the margin on the ultimate product for my clients here in the United States. I, I literally got on a plane and flew to Hong Kong and then, and then work my way over to Shenzhen just, just to help smooth that through and through that and, and, and solve that problem. And, and then literally flew back. I think I was on the ground for no more than 12 hours and then back. And, and so those are the types of things that I have done, done in my career. And I think that it's just ultimately important. So these, these types of relationships can build. And by the way, that relationship is really healthy to this day and has been very lucrative for both of those, those clients or for the client and for the manufacturer. Rob, you are a passionate reader. We've had lots of conversations about uh, philosophy, about your favorite writers. And so we have to talk for a few minutes about uh, about your reading regimen, about who your favorite uh, philosophers are, why you read them, what you get out of it, and what the rest of us might be missing. <laughs> that, that's, that's, a great, that's a great question and probably my favorite subject of, of all of this. I I do tend to read and think and consider through some of the greatest thinkers. For me, it's not a theoretical or esoteric exercise. I, I think that the, the world, for whatever reason, is so entrenched inside their own ideologies and married so deeply to their own dogmas that it's hard. I think for whatever reason, we live in this world where people have a hard time sort of seeing the other side. And so I tend to seek out 
the the um, antithetical and the iconoclast. <laughs> I tend to seek out those like Friedrich Nietzsche and Rene Descartes, William Blake to a certain extent. And I think if you ask the question, what is everybody else missing? I think that all almost every single deep and problematic issue that we deal with in the public sphere right now has to a large extent been reasoned through, analyzed through, and addressed by some of the greatest minds that have ever lived. And, and they, they provide the tools for helping us sort of get through it and get past it. And so I like, I like that level of reading um, because I think that it helps us ultimately see a greater view of the world that we can all live in to, to a large extent harmoniously but peacefully. And so anyway, that, that sounds a little bit high-minded, but I do believe that there's a lot to be gleaned from and gained by um, ex searching and exploring some of the greatest minds that have thought through some of these very problems that we're dealing with now. And, you know, I was a literature major, so one of the things that rings true to me is when you are in someone else's work, right? You're in a, and for this was work of fiction, right? You have to have your, your willingness to suspend your disbelief, right? You have to, even things you come up, you have to be in it, be, be really immersed in it. That's how I like to watch movies. That's how I like to read books. Um, and that's really how I like to engage in, in other people's philosophies as well. When I, I've said this before on the podcast, I consider myself very much a centrist uh, on a lot of things because I see good on, on many sides of, of the spectrum uh, to the extent there's more than just two sides to the spectrum. Uh, and this is, my, I want to understand something the way people who hold those beliefs very very dearly. I want to understand it the way they do. Um, I think I remember reading an article, uh, it's been several months now, but it was talking about the the commonalities between uh, what a lot of rural Americans and other rural people feel like, the neglect they feel like from uh, you know from the political center, um, is very similar to um, what others feel who are marginalized within uh, urban areas too. Right? To say, well, if 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 we just put their feelings on a spectrum and ask, had them answer the same ten questions they'd probably answer that nine out of 10 of them the same way, even though from uh, there's one thing that rubs them the wrong way about each other, right? And so it, those commonalities really, I, I tend to believe they can build much stronger communities um, where we can address our differences, which we certainly do have, um, rather than the other way around where we're holding on to our one piece that makes us different while ignoring all the things that, that bring us together. Jonathan, I completely agree. I think one of the values of reading is specifically reading literature is to have a certain level of, of exposure to other people's experiences. And, and to me, that is vicarious empathy. I, I think it's a chance for us to sort of push down our own paradigms and see the world from a different view. And so um, I, and I think that that is absolutely what is missing in the current uh, public forum. Rob, uh, it's been a great conversation. Really glad that we, we were able to sit down with you, sit down with a colleague. I have to say, at least to me, right, it, it says so much about the the people that I work with that we can bring in a colleague and have the same kind of fascinating conversation that we have with some of our guests who are tuning in from all corners of the of the world. So it's it's been a, a great experience. Thank you. Before we wrap up for today, though, I'd like to ask you for any recommendations you might have for us and or our listeners. Well, you know, I'm going to I'm going to do a plug for you and Jonathan. I know that you're expanding your practice a bit in the psychedelics and there is a book out there called The Immortality Key. 
and it is a historical treatment of of the of, of the relevance of psychedelics in the evolution of Christianity and a couple of other religions, but which is fine. And, 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 um, I think it's, it's, he's hypothesizing, which is great too. But what is really interesting is what's going on in the clinical space of psychedelics. And so I, I, I think that ultimately there's a, there's, there's some cool things that are happening in that realm and, and the expanding of the mind I think is happening as well. Um, there are, yeah, I tend to read original source material. Um, I would like to see us get back to some of the, some of the basics of thinking. Um, Frederick Nietzsche's The Birth of Tragedy and Beyond Good of Evil, I would recommend to anybody. And then uh, William Blake's Marriage of Heaven and Hell. I think if you want to paradigm shift a bit, that's a good place to start. Jonathan, anything for us? Yes, my recommendation today is not nearly as heavy as Rob's is, so maybe I chose this to, to balance out when you need a little bit of a break from the, the heavy philosophy. Uh, I've, there are three comics that I check out most days. There, I read them online. I guess I started out reading Calvin and Hobbes and Peanuts uh, early in my life. Uh, so I read uh, – every day I read Dilbert and I read The Far Side. Far side is more, uh, it's the, you can have the daily dose where you can get four or five comics from back in the 80s and 90s. Uh, but Gary Larson is also writing some new comics once in a while as well, which are a lot of fun. Uh, but I'm recommending today, uh, the website is the same as the, uh, as the name of the website. So the address is the same as the website. It's xkcd.com. This was done, it's done by a really smart guy who worked at NASA for a while and he does three comics a week, so I think Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and they're a mixture of you know something, some social commentary. But he is a, a brilliant guy who is a I think a physicist by a physicist or astronomer by maybe an astrophysicist by trade, since he was at NASA, right? So he he writes these comics, and and a lot of them are social commentaries, but they're a lot of fun to read. Uh, and my favorite thing probably is is his tagline that I think he might have removed since, but I've been reading his comics for probably 10 years. And uh, he says, uh, XKCD, these, some of these comics are going to be, uh, or will not be appropriate for young children. And some of the comics uh, regarding uh, math and science will not be appropriate for liberal arts majors. And so I, I kind of got a kick out of that because a lot of times when he does one that's very, uh, very on the scientific path, I, I look at it, I'm like, all right, I don't get this at all. And it's okay, right? Because I know that, that the next day there'll be one for me. So it's really fun and it kind of stretches my brain and, and I just love humor in general. So a lot of fun to check out if you, if you have a minute, xkcd.com. Fred, what do you have for us? So my recommendation this week is an article called The Lost Outlying Island of the Dachshund Diaspora. A few months ago, we had a guest on our podcast who lives in one of Taiwan's outlying islands. For those of you who are not too familiar with uh, Taiwan and, and cross-straits issues, uh, Taiwan controls a few islands that are away from the, from the main island of Taiwan and just opposite the, the mainland Chinese coast. And when we interviewed um, this guest, uh, Wen Li, he, he explained that there was a, another group of islands further to the north that had actually been held by 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 Taiwan for a number of years um, until they had to to abandon them. So there's an article 
that goes into this history. Uh, it's called the Lost Outlying Island of the Dachan Diaspora. Uh, the the islands they're they're um they're known as the Dachan Islands, and this uh, came out in a publication called Taiwan Insight. The the website for the uh, for the for the publication is TaiwanInsight.org, and this was written by Kaiyang Huang H U A N G. Um, very interesting. And while you're at it, um, if you're interested at all in this topic of the outlying islands or or Taiwan more broadly, do check out um, our interviews with um, with guests from Taiwan, Wen Li, and better call Zoe. So we've got a, we've got a lot of good. Uh, Taiwan content. So check that out. And with that, Rob, thank you for your for your recommendation. Thanks for for coming on the podcast. We look forward to to getting together with you again in the future. Thank you both very much. It was a joy. Global Law and Business is a production of Harris Bricken. The team includes Madeline Williams and Michaela Moore. The music is composed by Stephen Schmidt. If you like the show, subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review there. We like to hear what you think of the show, and it helps new listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then. Bye.